welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon now has a first. He's the first member of President Trump's inner circle to get a grand jury subpoena from special counsel Robert Mueller. Bannon has agreed to meet with Mueller's team for an interview later this month, according to a person familiar with the matter, who also said Bannon did not plan to assert executive privilege in that meeting. My guest is former federal prosecutor Jeffrey Kramer, the managing director of Berkeley Research Group. Jeff, let's start out with the fact that Bannon did get a grand jury subpoena. Is that a sure sign that he's not a target of Mueller's investigation? Well, it's really a good indication. Uh, there's a DOJ policy uh, that, uh, that that targets and, and perhaps even subjects, and that's defined differently in DOJ, uh, aren't given grand jury subpoenas because there's no sense having them come to the grand jury, go before the grand jury, and take the fifth. It's deemed prejudicial. So I think it's safe to say he's not the main target. Many people are not familiar with the grand jury process, so I'd just like you to take a moment to explain what a typical grand jury room looks like and what goes on? Sure. Um, most states have grand jury systems, and the federal system is done entirely by grand jury. It's basically a mechanism to get the case into uh, into court if enough uh, evidence warrants. We all hear about beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the standard that's needed to send someone to prison. However, before a grand jury, it just needs to be, it's a less standard, whether or not it's reasonable that the person committed the crime. And what it is, it's a room run entirely by the prosecutors. There's no defense lawyers in there. And depending whether it's a state or, or federal committee, we're from 20 to, to 35 individuals. And just as someone is called for a jury duty, you can get called for grand jury duty. And you sit and you hear a presentation by the prosecutor. Again, no defense lawyers, no judge. And it's just a mechanism to see whether or not an individual or individuals may have committed a crime. And if the grand jury deems that they have or may have, they uh, indict and then it's sent to court and the case proceeds. So here we have Bannon being served with a grand jury subpoena. Robert Mueller could have had him in front of the grand jury testifying under oath without his lawyer present. Why did Mueller, in your view, make a deal with Bannon to just come in under, you know, and and talk to them under oath instead of being before the grand jury? Yeah, I think deal is the operative word there. Uh, there may be some gamesmanship going on. If if Robert Mueller wanted him in the grand jury, then he's going in the grand jury unless he was going to take the Fifth Amendment. Um, so there could have been some gamesmanship with respect to the parameters of the interview. Um, and since he sent him a subpoena, uh, obviously rather than try to figure it out in the front end, uh, that gave Mueller certainly a bit of an advantage uh, and certainly sent a message uh, both to Bannon and perhaps others that are out there that not that it's surprising, but, but Robert Mueller will bring you into the grand jury if he deems it necessary. So the message is out. Um, so you're the pro- you're. I don't know if it'll be one of which of Mueller's many prosecutors it'll be, but say you're the prosecutor. What are some of the questions you're going to ask Steve Bannon? It's going to be uh, 
fairly broad, and you have the advantage of the prosecutor asking the questions uh, that you've talked to dozens, perhaps 100 people, and have a multitude of documents. So you're not going in blind. Uh, so when you ask a question, the odds are pretty good you may know the answer to it. Uh, not that you're setting up what's called a perjury trap. In other words, asking a question, seeing if they'll answer it right, and if they don't, uh, you uh, indict them for lying to the FBI, which is what we saw happen uh, already uh, on some of the individuals here. Um, but you're able to go in with, you know, you're on second base, essentially. You're either confirming information you've gotten from others, or you're testing the veracity, the truthfulness uh, that you've heard from other individuals. So while Steve Bannon may not be a target, uh, he could certainly be, if he's a truth teller, uh, provide uh, crucial information to see uh, if others uh, might be facing an indictment. So you'll ask him about what happened when FBI Director James Comey was fired? I would ask him everything I possibly could. Uh, start at the beginning uh, with Russian contacts, Trump Tower, what did you know, what emails did you get, who did you talk to, uh, who else was involved, was the president aware, and then work my way up uh, to the firing of uh, Comey. What did you know, where were you, what did you hear? Uh, you know, even hearsay here is, is relevant information for the prosecutors. And then go all the way up to conversations you had uh, with Mr. Wolf on the recent book up to the time uh, you left the uh, Oval Office. We've talked before about how Mueller was also following the money, the money trail. And Bannon said in, uh, allegedly, in the book that came out about uh, President Trump, that he told the author Wolf that there was likely to be a money laundering uh, charge. If, if, if Mueller finds money laundering, will that be outside his, the ambit of his prosecution? You know, it's a good question. I think the short answer is no. Um, and uh, Bannon could have been talking about Manafort. It was uh, not the best kept secret in the world that Paul Manafort was doing business overseas. And it's not shocking that people who have lobbying and uh, business uh, overseas may not uh, declare all their income uh, to the IRS. So Bannon could have been talking about Manafort or something else. But I think, and just quickly, the difference between a special counsel, which is Mueller, and a, a independent prosecutor, think of uh, Ken Starr, is that independent prosecutor is much more limited in what they can look at. Special counsel isn't. He's pretty broad. He has to touch base with the deputy attorney general, and we know from the deputy attorney general's uh, recent testimony before Congress that uh, Mueller has been meeting with him, and not necessarily getting permission, but just advising uh, the deputy attorney general where he's going, and if there's been a problem, uh, the, uh, the DAG, the deputy attorney general, could have stopped it. He hasn't. So obviously he's got the blessing at this point of DOJ as to where the investigation has been and where it's going. We just have about a minute, but let's talk about executive privilege and the White House instructing Bannon that it wanted him to preserve the president's option to exert executive privilege yesterday uh, in a Senate committee about things that happened before the election as well as at the White House. What's your opinion of that broad definition of executive privilege? And I think reasonable minds can differ, certainly on a lot of these issues, but that's a tough one. I don't think executive privilege extends to the election process. So while they may want to keep the option open, I think where the rubber hits the road, and this could eventually go before a court, who would be the arbiter, obviously, that's a tough, uh, that's a tough argument to play. It, 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 once the president is sworn in, that's a different conversation. Four months before, he's not an executive, so there's no privilege. Yes or no? 
does he have to actually exert the privilege before he requires other people? Uh, he does not. Others can uh, exert it before him, but he, he has, he's just keeping his options open because he knows once he exerts executive privilege, then the courts are coming in. All right. Jeffrey Kramer, Managing Director of the Berkeley Research Group. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services announced on Saturday that it's restarted the DACA program following a court order earlier in the week that required it to do so. A federal judge in California had ruled the Obama-era program providing deportation protection and work permits to young undocumented immigrants has to continue while the case challenging its termination goes forward in court. The Justice Department is appealing that decision to the Ninth Circuit, but yesterday, Justice announced that it would also be taking the rare step of seeking direct Supreme Court review of the judge's order before the Ninth Circuit could even consider it. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, Attorney General Jeff Sessions called this appeal straight to the Supreme Court a rare step. How rare? It is incredibly rare, and in fact, even though the justices have discretion to take on a case even before it has gone through all of the lower court levels, they don't do it often. It's a procedure that's reserved for major national controversies, you know, when, especially when time is an urgent factor, like maybe certifying an election, you know, for president or something like that. It's not, it's not something that is very uh, common that you see the Supreme Court skip the appellate court process. What also seems unusual is that in neither appeal, the one to the Ninth Circuit or this to the Supreme Court, is the Justice Department seeking an emergency stay of the judge's ruling as it did with the travel ban. So if everything is then going forward until the Supreme Court decides if it wants to take the case and then decides the case, why go straight to the Supreme Court? No, you're absolutely right, which is the reason they're not seeking a stay, and it's the same issue here again with regard to uh, why the Supreme Court would actually use this rare discretion and take the case, is because in both instances you sort of have to prove this irreparable harm that's going to happen if we don't get a decision in this case. And it's hard to prove here given that DACA's been around for five and a half years, number one. And number two, you had the president just last week going around in a room with 20 of America's top lawmakers and asked, do all of you want to have let the DACA kids stay? And they all said yes. So it's hard to show what the irreparable harm would be to the government by letting DACA continue while these cases are pending. Is it hard to show the Supreme Court why they should take this case now and interrupt the natural procedure of the case? Well, yes, and what makes it extremely hard is this. The argument that you would normally make to the Supreme Court in this instance is, look, we have this decision that's ruining the congressional negotiations on this very important issue, and that's why we need a determination now, and that's, you know, and it may be leading to a government shutdown, et cetera. But the problem is that would, uh, that would undermine the very arguments that they've been making in this case, which is that they said they, they uh, rescinded DACA because it was illegal, not because they were looking for some sort of uh, government uh, compromise where DACA would be tied to border security and to other measures. And so if, if they start admitting that that's their agenda here, is they want to be able to reach a compromise and that compromise can't be reached, it starts to undermine the argument for why they rescinded DACA in the first place. So why, Leon, why are they going directly to the Supreme Court then? What's the reasoning? 
Well, I think the main re- issue is this, which is that the Ninth Circuit is, you know, they, you have a very, 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 very small chance if you're the Justice Department to overturn the judge's injunction in the Ninth Circuit. And so what happens is, if this case were to take the ordinary course of time, it is entirely conceivable, I would say more likely than not, that you could have DACA be in existence until the middle of 2019, because the Supreme Court term is almost over. And so if the Ninth Circuit were to take its time and issue a thoughtful decision in May, let's say, on this Ninth Circuit, on the, on the Ninth Circuit DACA case, then the Supreme Court term would be over. They'd have to take the case in October and issue a decision whenever they got around to issuing a decision, which, you know, sometimes in these very hard cases goes all the way to May or June of the following year. So that would be May or June of 2019. And I think, I think the Trump administration cannot bear the thought that there would be this judicial DACA for such a long period of time. But if Sessions says going directly to the Supreme Court means the issue may be resolved quickly, but are they asking the justices to take it on some kind of extraordinary schedule or just their normal schedule, which would mean it would also be months and months and months before it gets resolved? Well, to be clear, since the filing hasn't been filed, I have to be speculating, but, but, but what I can say for certain is this. They're trying to get the case argued by March, which would be the last arguments that the court would have for the term so that it could be decided by the end of this term, which would be the beginning of June. And so that's their ideal time frame here. Uh, will the courts allow that? I think it'll be up to, you know, I, I think they're, they're watching everything that's happening in the Congress like everyone else is. And maybe you have a Justice Kennedy who says, look, I don't want my legacy to be that I sent a million kids into illegal status. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I'll take my time here and, and allow this process to last another year or a year and a half. So you think it's unlikely that the Supreme Court is going to intervene? It, it is so hard to make a prediction here because, it, you know, Justice Kennedy was one of the four votes when the court deadlocked last year at 4-4, which leads, the, you know, leads you to believe that he does think a program like this is problematic. Mm-hmm. But I also think that he may not want to do anything gratuitous in order to expedite the demise of the DACA program as a sort of lasting legacy of his career. And so I can foresee a scenario. I mean, if somebody puts a gun to my head, I would I would foresee a scenario where the court doesn't take this case. I'm not going to do that, Leon. Um, <laughs> now, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said in a statement that it defies both law and common sense that a single district court in San Francisco has halted the administration's plans. But didn't the same thing happen with the various iterations of the travel ban? It's a single judge here or there making national decisions. Well, forgetting about just what's been done to the Trump administration, the exact same attorney general that he's been working with to say DACA is illegal were the ones who filed the case in Texas during the Obama administration, and it was just one judge on the border in the Southern District of Texas who halted the Deferred Action, the DAPA program, the Deferred Action program that would have gone for the parents of the Dreamers. And so that seems that's what seems to be happening now is People go to one judge in a favorable district, and they get a ruling, and then that judge makes it a nationwide injunction. And the only solution to that would be some congressional statute that would prevent that. 
But both sides have been doing that for years now, and so nobody can claim to be surprised that this is happening. And at some point, is that procedure going to be appealed, or is someone going to look at it, perhaps the Supreme Court? Well, there is case law on this that says you can't issue a nationwide injunction unless there are certain circumstances that are met. But what the courts say in the immigration context is, look, we can't have different immigration laws in different states in this country. That creates a sort of just bizarre incentive structure for people to go to different places. And that's not, I mean, you have one America, so it should have one immigration policy. So that's why, yes. Thanks thanks so much, as always, for helping us sort through these difficult issues. That's Leon Fresco. He's a partner at Holland & Knight. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.